Section 23 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elsie Selwyn. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Ethics of Human Subjects Research, a Historical Perspective. Chapter 4, Part 1 According to the mission set out in our charter, the Advisory Committee is in essence a National Ethics Commission. In this capacity, we were obliged to develop an ethical framework for judging the human radiation experiments. This proved to be one of our most difficult tasks, for we were not only dealing with complex events that occurred decades ago, but also with some of the most controversial issues in moral philosophy. This chapter sets out the standards that we believe are appropriate for evaluating human radiation experiments and offers reasons for relying on them. It then applies these standards to the results of the historical research we have conducted and draws ethical conclusions. Fulfilling our charge to determine the ethical and scientific standards and criteria to evaluate human radiation experiments that took place between 1944 and 1974 requires consideration of a complex question. Is it correct to evaluate the events, policies, and practices of the past, in the agents responsible for them, against ethical standards and values that we accept as valid today, but that may not have been widely accepted then? Or must we limit our ethical evaluation of the past to those standards and values that were widely accepted at the time? This is the problem of retrospective moral judgment. Quite apart from the issue of the validity of projecting current standards onto the past, there is another question that this chapter must address. In a pluralistic society such as ours, is there at present a sufficiently broad consensus on ethical standards to make possible a public evaluation that is not simply the arbitrary imposition of one particular moral point of view among several or even many? This is the problem of value pluralism. The ethical framework the advisory committee employs takes both these issues into account. This chapter is divided into two parts. In the first part, we present and defend the ethical framework adopted by the committee for the evaluation of human radiation experiments conducted from 1944 to 1974 and the agents responsible for them. We begin by identifying the types of moral judgments with which the committee is concerned and the different kinds of ethical standards against which these judgments can be made. We next address two challenges to the position that the advisory committee can use these or any other standards to make valid ethical judgments. These challenges are 1. That the diversity of views about ethics in American society invalidates any effort by a public body, such as the advisory committee, to make moral judgments, and two, that the diversity of views about ethics across time similarly invalidates our making defensible moral judgments about the past. Although the committee does not accept these challenges as definitive, we discuss these as well as other factors that influence or limit ethical evaluation. We include here a discussion of an issue of particular relevance to our charge, what role, if any, considerations of national security should play in the committee's ethical framework? We also consider factors that can mitigate the blame we would otherwise place on agents, whether individuals or collective entities, 
for having conducted morally wrong actions. In the second part of the chapter, we explore how the committee's ethical framework can be used to evaluate both experiments conducted in the past and the people and institutions that sponsored and conducted them. Drawing on the history presented in chapters 1 through 3, we illustrate how, when applied, the framework is specified by context and detail. This specification of the framework continues in part two of the report when the framework is used to evaluate specific cases. An ethical framework. Two types of moral judgment. For purposes of the committee's charge, there are two main types of moral judgment. Judgments about the moral quality of actions, policies, practices, institutions, and organizations, and judgments about the praiseworthiness or blameworthiness of individual agents and in some cases entities such as professions and governments, insofar as these can be viewed as collective agents with powers and responsibilities. The first type contains several kinds of judgments. Actions may be judged to be obligatory, wrong, or permissible. Institutions, policies, and practices can be characterized as just or unjust, equitable or inequitable, humane or inhumane. Organizations can be said to be responsible or negligent, fair-dealing or exploitative. The second type of judgment about the praiseworthiness or blameworthiness of agents also contains a diversity of determinations. Agents, whether individual or collective, can be judged to be culpable or praiseworthy for this or that action or policy, to be generous or mean-spirited, responsible or negligent, to respect the moral equality of people, or to discriminate against certain individuals or groups, and so on. Three kinds of ethical standards. A recognized way to make moral judgments is to evaluate the facts of a case in the context of ethical standards. The committee identified three kinds of ethical standards as relevant to the evaluation of the human radiation experiments. One. Basic ethical principles that are widely accepted and generally regarded as so fundamental as to be applicable to the past as well as the present. 2. The policies of government departments and agencies at the time. And 3. Rules of professional ethics that were widely accepted at the time. Basic ethical principles. Basic ethical principles are general standards or rules that all morally serious individuals accept. The advisory committee has identified six basic ethical principles as particularly relevant to our work. One ought not to treat people as mere means to the ends of others. One ought not to deceive others. One ought not to inflict harm or risk of harm. One ought to promote welfare and prevent harm. One ought to treat people fairly and with equal respect. And one ought to respect the self-determination of others. These principles state moral requirements. They are principles of obligation, telling us what we ought to do. Every principle on this list has exceptions. Because every moral principle can justifiably be overridden by other basic principles and circumstances when they conflict. To give priority to one principle over another is not a moral mistake. It is a reality of moral judgment. The justifiability of such judgments depends on many factors in the circumstance. It is not possible to assign priorities to these principles in the abstract. Far more social consensus exists about the acceptability of these basic principles than exists about any philosophical, religious, or political theory of ethics. 
this is not surprising given the central social importance of morality and the fact that its precepts are embraced in some form by virtually all major ethical theories and traditions these principles are at the deepest level of any person's commitment to a moral way of life it is important to emphasize that the validity of these basic principles is not typically thought of as limited by time we commonly judge agents in the past by these standards for example, the passing of fifty years in no way changes the fact that Hitler's extermination of millions of people was wrong, nor does it erase or even diminish his culpability, nor would the passing of a hundred years, or a thousand, do so. This is not to deny that it might be inappropriate to apply to the distant past some ethical principles to which we now subscribe. It is only to note that there are some principles so basic that we ordinarily assume, with good reason, that they are applicable to the past as well as the present, and will be applicable in the future as well. We regard these principles as basic because any minimally acceptable ethical standpoint must include them. Policies of Government Departments and Agencies The policies of departments and agencies of the government can be understood as statements of commitment on the part of those governmental organizations, and hence of individuals in them, to conduct their affairs according to the rules and procedures that constitute those policies. In this sense, policies create ethical obligations. When a department or agency adopts a particular policy, it in effect promises to make reasonable efforts to abide by it. At least where participation in the organization is voluntary, and where the organization's defining purpose is morally legitimate, it is not, for example, a criminal organization, to assume a role in the organization is to assume the obligations that attach to that role. Depending upon their roles in the organization, particular individuals may have a greater or lesser responsibility for helping to ensure that the policy commitments of the organization are honored. For example, high-level managers who formulate organizational policies have an obligation to take reasonable steps to ensure that these policies are effectively implemented. If they fail to discharge those obligations, they have done wrong and are blameworthy, unless some extenuating circumstance absolves them of responsibility. One sort of extenuating circumstance is that the policy in question is unethical. In that case, we would hold an individual blameless for not attempting to implement it, at least if the individual did so because of recognition that the policy was unethical. Moreover, we might praise the individual for attempting an institutional reform at some professional or personal risk. Different types of organizations have different defining purposes, and these differences determine the character of the department's or agency's role-derived obligations. All government organizations have special responsibilities to act impartially and to fairly protect all citizens, including the most vulnerable ones. These special obligations constitute a standard for evaluating the conduct of government officials. Rules of Professional Ethics Professions traditionally assume responsibilities for self-regulation, including the promulgation of certain standards to which all members are supposed to adhere. These standards are of two kinds, technical standards that establish the minimum conditions for competent practice, and ethical principles that are intended to govern the conduct of members in their practice. In exchange for exercising this responsibility, society implicitly grants professions a degree of autonomy. The privilege of this autonomy in turn creates special obligations for the profession's members. These obligations function as constraints on professionals 
to reduce the risk that they will use their special power and knowledge to the detriment of those whom they are supposed to serve thus physicians whose special knowledge gives them opportunities for exploiting patients or breaching confidentiality are obligated to act in the patient's best interests in general and to follow various prescriptions for minimizing conflicts of interests unlike basic ethical principles that speak to the whole of moral life rules of professional ethics are particularized to the practices social functions and relationships that characterize a profession rules of professional ethics are often justified by appeal to basic ethical principles for example as we discuss later in this chapter the obligation to obtain informed consent which is the rule of research in medical ethics is grounded in principles of respect for self-determination the promotion of others welfare and the non-infliction of harm in one respect rules of professional ethics are like the policies of institutions and organizations they express commitments to which their members may be rightly held by others that is rules of professional ethics express the obligations that collective entities impose on their members and constitute a commitment to the public that the members will abide by them absent some special justification failure to honor the commitment to fulfill these obligations constitutes a wrong to the extent that the profession as a collective entity has obligations of self-regulation failure to fulfill these obligations can lead to judgments of collective blame ethical pluralism and the convergence of moral positions although we have argued that there is broad agreement about an acceptance of basic ethical principles in the united states such as principles that enjoin us to promote the welfare of others and to respect self-determination people nevertheless disagree about the relative priority or importance of these principles in the moral life for example although any minimally acceptable ethical standpoint must include both these principles some approaches to morality emphasize the importance of respecting self-determination while others place a higher priority on duties to promote welfare these differences in approaches to morality pose a problem for public moral discourse how can a public body such as the advisory committee purport to speak on behalf of society as a whole and at the same time respect this diversity of views about ethics the key to understanding how this is possible is to appreciate that different ethical approaches can and often do converge on the same ethical conclusions people can agree about what ought to be done without necessarily appealing to the same moral arguments to defend their common position this phenomenon of convergence has been observed in the work of other public bodies whose charge was to make ethical evaluations on research involving human subjects including the national commission for the protection of human subjects of biomedical and behavioral research and the president's commission for the study of ethical problems in medicine and biomedical and behavioral research for example both those who take the viewpoint that emphasizes obligations to promote welfare and to refrain from inflicting harm and those who accord priority to self-determination can agree that law and medical and research practice should recognize a right to informed consent for competent individuals the argument for requirements of informed consent based on promoting welfare and refraining from inflicting harm assumes that individuals are generally most interested in and knowledgeable about their own well-being individuals are thus in the best position to discern what will promote their welfare and generally most when deciding about participation in research or medical care allowing physicians or others to decide for them runs too great a risk of harm or loss of benefits by contrast an approach based on self-determination assumes that at least for competent individuals 
being able to make important decisions concerning one's own life and health is intrinsically valuable, independent of its contribution to promoting one's well-being. The most compelling case for recognizing a right of informed consent for competent subjects and patients draws upon both lines of justification, emphasizing that this requirement is necessary from the perspective of self-determination considered as valuable in itself, and from the standpoint of promoting welfare and refraining from doing harm. Therefore, although people may have different approaches to the moral life, which reflect different priorities among basic moral principles, these differences need not result in a lack of consensus on social policy, or even on particular moral rules, such as the rule that competent individuals ought to be allowed to accept or refuse participation in experiments. On the contrary, the fact that the same moral rules or social policies can be grounded in different basic moral principles and points of view greatly strengthens the case for their public endorsement by official bodies charged to speak for society as a whole. The three kinds of ethical standards upon which the committee relies for our ethical evaluations, the basic moral principles, government policies, and rules of professional ethics also enjoy a broad consensus. They are not idiosyncratic to a particular ethical value system. Thus, it would be a mistake to think that in order to fulfill our charge of ethical evaluation, the advisory committee must assume that there is only one uniquely correct ethical standpoint. A broad range of views can acknowledge that the medical profession should be held accountable for moral rules it publicly professes, and that individual physicians can be held responsible for abiding by these rules of professional ethics. Likewise, regardless of whether one believes that the ultimate justification for government policies is the goal of promoting welfare and minimizing harms, or respect for self-determination, one can agree that policies represent commitments to actions and hence generate obligations. Moreover, any plausible ethical viewpoint will recognize that when individuals assume roles in organizations, they thereby undertake role-derived obligations. We have already argued that the basic ethical principles that we employ in evaluating experiments are widely accepted and command significant allegiance not only from our contemporaries, but also from reflective and morally sensitive individuals and ethical traditions in the past. It would be very implausible to construe any of them as parochial or controversial. Retrospective Moral Judgment and the Challenge of Relativism some may still have reservations about the project of evaluating the ethics of decisions and actions that occurred several decades ago. The worry is that it is somehow inappropriate, if not muddled, to apply currently accepted standards to earlier periods when they were not accepted, recognized, or viewed as matters of obligation. This is an important worry, though one that does not apply to our framework. The position that the values and principles of today cannot be validly applied to past situations in which they may not have been accepted is called historical ethical relativism. This is the thesis that moral judgments across time are invalid because moral judgments can be justified only by reference to a set of shared values, and the values of a society change over time. According to this view, one historical period differs from another by virtue of lacking the relevant values contained in the other historical period, namely those that support or justify the particular moral judgments in question. Understood in this way, historical ethical relativism, if true, would explain why some retrospective moral judgments are invalid, namely, where the past society about which the judgments are made lack the values that, in our time, support our judgments. 
in other words the claim is that moral judgments made about actions and agents in one period of history cannot be made from the perspective of the values of another historical period the question of whether historical ethical relativism limits the validity of retrospective moral judgment is not a mere theoretical puzzle for moral philosophers it is an eminently practical question since how we answer it has direct and profound implications for what we ought to do now most obviously the position we adopt on the validity of retrospective moral judgment will determine whether we should honor claims that people now make for remedies for historical injustices allegedly perpetrated against themselves or their ancestors similarly we must know whether there is any special circumstance resulting from the historical context in which the responsible parties acted that mitigates whatever blame would be appropriate we return to this question later in the chapter in addition something even more fundamental is at stake in the debate over retrospective moral judgment the possibility of moral progress the idea of moral progress makes sense only if it is possible to make moral judgments about the past and to make them by appealing to some of the same moral standards that we apply to the present unless we can apply the same moral yardstick to the past and the present we cannot meaningfully say either that there has been moral progress or that there has not for example unless some retrospective moral judgments are valid we cannot say that the abolition of slavery is a case of moral progress moral regression or either one more specifically unless we can say that slavery was wrong we cannot say that the abolition of slavery was a moral improvement for these and other reasons the acceptance of historical ethical relativism has troubling implications but even if we were to accept historical ethical relativism as the correct position it would not follow from this alone that there is anything improper about making judgments about radiation experiments conducted decades ago based on the three kinds of ethical standards the committee has identified two of these standards government policies and rules of professional ethics are standards used at the time the experiments were conducted neither of these kinds of standards involves projecting current cultural values onto a different cultural milieu we have already argued that basic ethical principles the third kind of standard adopted by the committee are not temporally limited although there have been changes in ethical values in the united states between the mid-1940s and the present it is implausible that these changes involve the rejection or affirmation of principles so basic as that it is wrong to treat people as mere means wrong to inflict harm or wrong to deceive people thus the advisory committee's evaluation of the human radiation experiments in light of these basic principles is based on a simple and we think reasonable assumption that even fifty years ago these principles were pervasive features of moral life in the united states that were widely recognized and accepted much as we recognize and accept them today end of section twenty three recording by elsie selwyn